Hello and welcome to the Ukrainian Society podcast at KCL plus 380. Today we're welcoming Dr. Mark Berenson, who is a senior lecturer at the King's Russia Institute. Among the module he teaches is the Ukrainian Contemporary Politics and Society, which is available to students in their final year. Prior to joining King's, Dr. Mark Berenson founded and directed from 1996 to 1998 the Law in Action program for Freedom House in Kyiv, Ukraine, before receiving his PhD in political science from Princeton University in 2006. Welcome, Mark. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Um, so, Mark, our first question will be, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your time in Kyiv while you were working in a Freedom House and what was your first impression of Ukraine and its people? Um. So I got there uh, in 1996. I'm from Atlanta, and I, I came a few days after the Atlanta Olympics had closed. And uh, of course, it was summer. It's a, Kiev is a very beautiful city, one of, probably one of the top three cities for me in the world, um, including hometowns. Uh, and I have been going back uh, almost every year uh, up until COVID uh, hit, and now the war has also curtailed my trips there. But um, people were very friendly, very outgoing, very curious as well. And it sort of was a contrast to other places I'd been, such as in Russia, where people were a bit more um, uh, reserved on the street, so to speak. Um, and we did a phenomenal number of projects, given our small budget and small staff. We had Uh, we gave out uh, small grants to local human rights NGOs. We uh, had a series of conferences focused on different human rights and rule of law issues, such as um, how to provide for freedom of the press um, and also how the judiciary can be covered by uh, local press in order to explain to citizens what is going on with their court system. Um, also had uh, a series of events regarding the return of deported peoples from Central Asia back to Ukraine, especially to Crimea. Um, a number of Crimean Tatars have begun to make the journey back to Ukraine after their uh, parents and ancestors have been deported to Central Asia during the uh, Stalin era. Um, and uh, at the same time, the pace of reform in Ukraine was not going much of anywhere. Um, There's very slow uh, initiative to sort of uh, st uh, start a lot of the needed economic reforms. Certainly there had been currency reform. Um, just as I arrived, the uh, coupons were being replaced by the Rivna, mm. um, and everyone was excited to see what the new Rivna notes looked like um, at the time. And uh, But other reforms um, were not going Uh, as fast. And of course, the country was uh, pretty much impoverished. Um, it was wonderful to be an expat there at the time. You could walk into practically, after you'd lived there six months, you could walk into any bar or restaurant and recognize about half the people there because there weren't that many um, foreigners and there weren't that many people who could afford to, to eat out at the time. But for the average citizen, it was really quite quite a challenging time. And you saw this um, in terms of how people were faring on the street, in terms of what they could afford to buy, um, and, and uh, the types of food products that were available to them. So it, 
you know, I, I miss those times to, just to, to, in terms of having a prolonged time of being in Ukraine and traveling around the country as well. But at the same time, the country uh, a decade later was much better off. Yeah, you mentioned the sort of the the feel of, of Ukraine and sort of the friendliness um, of the people. But the the one thing we thought about that that would be interesting to discuss is the status of the Russian language and um, it being obviously the hot issue in Ukraine for a very long time. And many are now consciously thinking of switching to Ukraine, Ukrainian language because of the war, because of the uh, um, even those who are apolitical are still feeling that uh, they can no longer carry on speaking in Russian. So what would you say, um, how do you think the linguistic shift in influence cultural dynamics and societal attitudes in Ukraine? So I've been conducting surveys with the Razumkov Center um, all the way back to 2005, which was a year after the Orange Revolution uh, occurred. And we've been asking questions about preferences or native language choices or, or uh, and so forth. And there's been a shift over time, no doubt, and certainly it's increased during the war, that more people are saying that their native language is Ukrainian. Um, one wonders to what extent this can really constitute a shift because you only grew up with the language you grew up with, yeah. so to speak, and you speak at home the language that you uh, speak. But I think the people answering the questions are responding to uh, some sort of maybe need within themselves to demonstrate that they're more patriotic, um, that the, the significance of the language choice as being a proxy for patriotism is is certainly um, a, a strong uh, a, a trend. In terms of my experience with the language, um, I'm a native, I'm not, a, not, not a native Russian speaker, but I, I learned Russian in university and I've since been taking up uh, Ukrainian. Um, I found that uh, most people in Ukraine, no matter what part of the country you were, were always accommodating to uh, the conversation at hand. And you, there are many conversations people have where uh, folks are, well, party is speaking in Russian and the other party is speaking in Ukrainian. And they both recognize this, but they both get along just fine conversing. Um, in some respects, at the street level, Ukrainians' tolerance continues on to how people are adjusting um, with language, mm -hmm. whether you're in Lviv or Eastern Ukraine. Um, the same token, uh, there, there is sort of this... Uh, theory that what Ukraine has is diglossia, which is basically Ukrainians, uh, citizens are using different languages and different circumstances at different times. I certainly saw that with the conferences that we held in uh, Kyiv uh, and around the country in the, um, in the 90s, where, you, uh, where our, our participants, human rights activists, members of parliament, members of government and so forth, they would speak Ukrainian inside the seminar room, inside the right. conference room, but they'd go outside to, to smoke a cigarette and they would be speaking Russian. So there's a, there's a sense there's a time and a place for uh, these different languages and most people know both languages um, and, and as a result they are able to adapt to the situation at hand. So I don't, I don't necessarily, I haven't been back obviously in the last couple of years due to COVID and the war. So I don't know uh, to what extent 
uh, Russian has been more phased out and Ukrainian has been more popular, um, certainly within Kiev. Kiev was mostly a Russian-speaking city decades ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's uh, increased use of Ukrainian over time. And, and in some ways that's natural given the ambitions of, uh, uh, of the state and forging a new uh, independence uh, identity, if you will. Um, and uh, uh, but I, I I haven't heard I, well I've heard that Ukrainian has been more commonly spoken in in Kiev for example than before I have not heard instances where people were sort of turned away or turned off for speaking Russian or right uh, um, that Russian is not going to be accepted I do remember a few years ago Lviv had an, uh, a Russian speaking day just to demonstrate that they were not against the Russian language there. So would you then say that sort of the the language question in Ukraine is a bit overstated in terms of its significance for for the development of the country? There has been, I do think it is overstated, um, but I think there's also been um, a lot of, uh, uh, whether it's propaganda or media coming from Russia, but also in the West of viewing Ukraine as if it's a former Yugoslav Republic, a deeply divided state, and I've never experienced Ukraine as being a deeply divided state. Mm. Um, and uh, if anything, all Ukrainians are kind of uh, a bit peeved at what they get from the state and what they don't get the, from the state in terms of goods and services and the like. Um, and they share that factor. They may be more supportive of the government if one politician is in charge versus another, depending upon which region the politician's from. Um, but I think it is uh, overstated to such an extent in some at certain times over the last decade that I think it's been um, more problematic uh, in terms of drawing up support for Ukraine externally than rather than looking at what's going on in fact uh, um, on the street, so to speak, in, in in Ukraine itself. All right, that makes sense. I feel that. Obviously, after the full-scale invasion in the whole Ukraine, there has been like a shift in terms of language preferences and in terms of um, the language that you have to speak. So, for example, now, especially like in Western Ukraine, if you speak um, Russian, you're probably going to have some side eyes on the street and people will probably not tell you that they judge you, but unconsciously they will judge you. But what's interesting, and I wanted to ask you whether you think that, um, because I've heard the narrative that um, if we speak Russian, we continue to consume Russian culture. So it's kind of like, while we're making a shift towards Ukrainian language, we create our own culture and create our own cultural heritage in this sense. Do you think it's a... it's something that makes sense. I think it's something that needs to be considered. And I think it's up to Ukraine as to the people across the country as to how much Russian or how much Ukrainian and in which circumstances they'll be using one or the other um, is appropriate. If um, I, I think this is prolonged um, process of national identity building for the country. And Certainly, um, Ukraine has been perhaps promoted more than Russian over the years as a way of uh, uh, 
forming a solid identity that Ukraine is a distinct country um, unto itself. Um, whether what people's attitudes or thinking might be of others who speak Russian or speak Ukrainian in different moments, that's going to change over time. That's going to change because uh, 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 whether in certain circumstances Ukrainian might be more in use, um, whether, uh, but these are sort of, we, we make judgments as individuals anyway about what people say and what they do, yeah. regardless of whatever language they're saying it in. So um, I, I just think this is an ongoing process. Uh, and one of the things that Ukraine pretty much failed to do or didn't do that well in the first decade after the collapse of the Soviet Union was really decide basic questions of what type of democracy it wanted to be, what type of market economy it wanted to have, and also, you know, some of these questions regarding identity as well. And um, this is in some ways a delayed response. Um, the, the, uh, the revolutions, you know, the Orange Revolution and the Euromaidan Revolution are in many ways sort of a, a delayed response to not having uh, s declared what type of democracy they want to have. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think this is a question that Ukrainians need to decide amongst themselves. Through discussion, through debate, through podcasts, through radio uh, programs and the like, um, I for a while thought that the freest Russian uh, language media in the world was in Kyiv. Mm. And um, most of the publications that were published, magazines, newspapers, journals and the like, they were published either in Russian or in Russian and Ukrainian throughout the 90s and the first decade of the Audis. And I think that uh, um, the ability to have such free media relative to what was um, being uh, sort of practiced in the countries to the east um, also was quite, uh, I think, positive for the country as well. You mentioned a sort of sluggish pace of reform in Ukraine and um, earlier this year I read an article by The Economist titled Patriotic Ukrainians are rushing to pay their taxes. Um, the article basically summarizes that Ukrainians were way more eager to pay their taxes um, when the full-scale invasion began and, and there were a few businesses that uh, opted out to prepay their taxes as well. Um, I imagine this contrasts sharply with the situation back in the sort of 1990s, 2000s. So do you think that was just an impulse of patriotism that is likely to wane away as, as the Russian threat is sort of not as, not as obvious or something more than that? So um, I think it's an impulse of patriotism, but also a recognition as to what the state is doing and wanting to get behind it. Now, I've been... My surveys with Razumkov Center go back to 2005, and one of the key sort of focal points of these surveys has been asking people whether they consider themselves to be taxpayers, whether they are willing to pay taxes. You can't go out and ask people on the street, maybe if you were in Finland, perhaps you could, and, say, and ask them, gee, you know, um, how often do you pay your taxes on time and in full? But um, devised a question for the surveys asking people would they follow the tax laws even if they personally disagreed with them, even if they personally felt them to be unfair. And Ukraine compared to Russia and Ukraine in the, um, 
in 2004 or 5 and 2010 was much less receptive to um, paying taxes. Uh, whereas in 2004 in Poland, 83% of Poles said they would pay taxes even if they disagreed with the tax laws. And in Russia that same year, 53% said they would. In Ukraine, the figure um, in 2005 was 36%. And from 2005 to 2020, that figure hovered between 36 and 45%. So never there was a majority who agreed that they ought to be paying taxes, um, even if they disagree with the laws. But in the last couple of years, we conducted a survey in 2002, and then a year later in 2000, I'm sorry, 2022, and a year later in 2023, and found that the figure has dropped, has jumped to 64 or 60 percent. Um, and, right. and these are huge jumps. And it indicates that the public is more with the state than ever before. Um, when you ask questions about whether the public uh, tr trust the state to do what is right or trust the state to treat people fairly. The figures have jumped as well um, uh, since before the war. Uh, moreover, the, the figure of asking people, uh, do you trust the state to protect you, has skyrocketed from the 20s to 71 or so percent. And I think this reflection of recognizing that uh, one should be paying one's fair due to the state is in recognition of patriotism, in recognition that the state is providing for the military and the military is what's going to win this war. Mm -hmm. um, the support for the military has skyrocketed, of course, over the last couple of years during the war. And there's also probably the possibility that in this time that if people do have income and, and about, say, half the people found that their incomes didn't change that much from before the war, the other half, of course, did had a significant drop. Um, where are you going to put your money? Um, their future is tied with the, the security of Ukraine, and so it's tied with giving uh, money to the state. That said, Ukrainians would prefer to give money to nonprofit organizations or uh, charities that are funding the military rather than going through paying taxes to the state. But all in all, this is a huge change, and when it portents for the future is quite promising. If and when Ukrainians are able to get the Russians out of their country, if they have a stronger relationship with their state than they had in the previous two and a half decades or so, then they really can move mountains, if you will. They can tackle the huge problems that await them with regards to corruption. They can um, make the reforms necessary to get into the EU. They can begin to become what they always wanted to become and what people on the Maidan in 2004 and 2014 wanted, and that is to have a normal country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a normal, as you say, uh, you know, joining the EU is probably the main thing people think about when, when, when they think about having a normal country. So would you be able to comment a little bit on the, uh, the recommendation by the European Commission to start accession talks? Um, for Ukraine and Moldova, does that reflect um, just a political sort of gesture or is it more of a Ukrainian state taking a reform seriously? From what I understand, in Brussels, the Europeans are taking uh, the importance of bringing in Ukraine to the EU very seriously. And I think that the 
plans that are being drawn up for uh, rebuilding, reconstruction of Ukraine that certainly will get, um, you know, beefed up after the war um, uh, ends. They all call for this being done in tangent with joining the EU. Mm -hmm. The process of rebuilding has to come with the process of Ukraine entering into the EU. And that has to be something that um, Europeans recognize and something that, that, well, Ukrainians as well as the Europeans uh, that they are um, also have to recognize that they will have a roadmap to get there. And this isn't some sort of um, pie in the sky dream. You know, Ukraine, for the most part, was the only country you saw people die protesting trying to get into the EU. Yeah. Yeah. And that needs to be recognized on the part of Brussels. For Moreover, European security, European democracy is at risk as well if uh, Ukraine is uh, not going to win this war. And uh, to win, um, there needs to have the goalpost at the end that Ukraine is becoming part of uh, uh, the rest of Europe. Do you think it's possible for Ukraine to get into European Union before we win the war? I don't know. I, I, I think that there's always going to be people who may be less informed of what's going on on the ground in Ukraine and just panic at the idea of bringing in a, a, a state that's uh, in the midst of a war. Moreover, um, you, NATO does not want to bring in uh, Ukraine uh, during the war. Yeah. There's thoughts about it doing so afterwards, but not at this time. Um, and one of the main challenges of the last 30 years in terms of how the West was approaching uh, Ukraine was the West was trying a lot of support and funding to, to, bring, to make Ukraine more democratic, to make its markets function um, better um, for the country as a whole, and to have a lot of interaction and contact with Ukrainians, um, bringing Ukrainians into Europe on, whether they're on uh, 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 sort of um, so-called trade, uh, uh, trade trips or, or, or just in terms of um, inter, uh, greater uh, cooperation on a variety of um, interstate activities. But what the, the West did not do was really provide for a canopy of security over Ukraine. And I think some of it, the thinking prior to 2022 was that um, the West didn't need to do that. Nothing serious would, would result from them not doing so. And, you know, coupled with changing your economy, coupled with changing uh, from communism to democracy, uh, providing for security, an umbrella or a canopy, if you will, that would enable um, any country undertaking such a transformation to be able to continue to proceed to do so and not be interrupted by outside forces. Yeah, I mean, uh, as you say, the West... Uh would you say actually if the West underestimated the um, the threat from Russia and the, the sort of the actual maybe motives uh, for their foreign policy because we saw uh, Nord Stream 2 uh, being approved in Germany and sort of enhancing Germany's dependence on, on Russian gas and then in 2022 as soon as the whole thing sort of fell apart and Russian tanks invaded Ukraine 
um, Germany struggled with inflation and now the, the sort of um, less than optimal growth prospects. So would you say there was a sort of fundamental or strategic, uh, to, to call it so, mistake on the part of the West? Um, Germany especially took a, a big risk. Um, they had this foreign policy that had been formed for decades that, that basically said, we need to embrace and engage with Russia. That is the path towards peace and prosperity. And it didn't turn out that way. They gambled and put too much of their um, energy needs upon um, trading with Russia. And that said, however, in the last couple of years, Germany's been going uh, somewhat swiftly through a, a foreign policy um, rethink, if you will, and is very much um, recognizing the, the importance of uh, supporting Ukraine, uh, and uh, uh, which means supporting democracy and, and, and free markets and, and the rest. Mm -hmm. um, I would also say that uh, um, Germany probably has a greater obligation, well, has an obligation to support Ukraine, given the way the 20th century panned out. Um, there's no other country that I can think of other than Ukraine that suffered more in the 20th century um, and had more death, state-sponsored death on its territory. You had the Holodomir, you had the Holocaust, you had World War II, and both war, wars actually saw the front lines shifting back and forth, crisscrossing across the country, such that um, Ukrainians experienced the worst of the war at least twice as the fronts moved in different directions. Um, and most of the, a good number of those who fought in the Soviet army were um, from Ukraine. Mm. And, and Ukraine was an integral part of that win in 1945. And I think it's very easy to sort of assume that uh, Russia is the successor state to the Soviet Union, therefore we need to sort of uh, handle Russia as we would our former enemy. But Ukraine itself um, suffered greatly as well at the hands of the Germans. And I think that um, they have begun to recognize that more and more just over the last two years. So I see foreign policy shifting greatly in Germany, but across the EU as well. Of course, there are certain circumstances like the election in Netherlands uh, in recent days that may um, put obstacles for, U for Ukraine when it comes to how EU politics uh, uh, gets to decide how much and when they're going to be supporting Ukraine. But in general, um, across the continent, there's been a solid wave of support. I've noticed this from the countries that I've visited, which have had you know, a tremendous number of Ukrainian flags out. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so I think that will continue. If we're talking about uh, the West and its influence in Ukraine, um, many in the West, and particularly in the US, are talking about elections, re-elections, and general elections in Ukraine. What's your opinion about it? And because there is also a concern that um, it will not be possible to make an election, and thus it's not going to be fair. At the same time, it's not going to be fair if we're not going to have them. Um, so yeah, what what do you think about it? It is a classic dilemma. Ukraine has been and is a democracy, and the terms of uh, office that 
parliament members, the president we're elected to, were, were fixed. Um, at the same time, there are tremendous uh, security concerns. Um, uh, if they were to hold elections, would the election um, polling stations become targets for either terrorism or airstrikes from Russia? Would um, uh, how it, you know it's martial law actually, as it's written, does uh, not see foresee parliamentary elections being held um, during a, a state of war. And last month they would have been held if it were not for the war um, uh, in October, um, four years after the the previous elections that were held in 2019. Uh, when it comes to presidential elections, the martial law is a bit vague as to whether they have to be held um, at set, set times or not. Um, but it's a question of, it's about security, it's a question about feasibility. How are you going to um, determine who has a right to vote based upon the fact that many provinces have had, uh, certainly in the East, have had a number of citizens um, flee either uh, the region or the country as a whole. Um, how are you going to determine where military uh, 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 personnel are going to vote? And can they vote while they're still fighting a war at the same time? Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of concern. And, and as well, m the, the opinion polls that I have seen is that most Ukrainians do not want to have elections held now. And the, re and the paramount reason, I think, is they don't want money spent on the elections. They want the money to be spent on fighting the war. And that's a reasonable um, uh, a position. Um, and Ukraine would not be the only country that sort of uh, pushed back elections because it was in the midst of a all uh, sort of intensive war. Um, the question I think I have in my mind is not whether the election should have been held last month for parliament or next spring for president, but rather how long could it go on uh, for uh, elections not being held? Um, uh, and I think that at some point, democracy needs to be sort of um, revitalized, reinvigorated, and, 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 and voting is an affirmation process as well, not just in who you vote for, but also in the state and the country in which you're voting as well. Um, so I've also seen maybe anecdotes of stories that if a war lasts two years, the likelihood of it lasting 10 years mm. grows, grows up incredibly. Um, mm. And obviously all of us would fear for a war that would go on for so many years in Ukraine. But it would be hard to imagine that um, the current crop of politicians would perhaps even want to be in office for, for 10 years without an election being held. Um, I think it's important to have them at some point, perhaps in the discussions about whether to postpone the next elections uh, for president in the spring, might come with some sort of uh, promise or discussion about when they might be held um, so that the, the citizens have some sort of uh, understanding from their government as to what's going on. There are some fears that um, certain U.S. or maybe just Western politicians as a whole will use um, Ukraine not holding elections as a pretext to cut aid and 
you know, that will be exacerbated even more if Donald Trump is back in power in 2024. What would you say to that? Um, I think there are a number of politicians in the U.S., not a majority, um, but a, a strong handful who would look for any reason not to give money to Ukraine. And it's very short-sighted. It's not in their country's interest. There's so many important reasons why the U.S. should be supporting the war um, effort on the behalf of the Ukrainians. Least of all is that, that um, you know, we're not having our men die or fight on the battlefield. And as long as there's a war um, that staves off the Russians in Ukraine, the likelihood of their having uh, Russians uh, uh, wandering about the rest of Europe, which would require um, U.S. forces to be committed to such a fight, um, so, uh, such a likelihood would be decreased um, uh, dramatically. Also, there's other side benefits to most of the weapons that the U.S. sends to the um, uh, to Ukraine come from the U.S. They come from stockpiles. They are replenished by more weapons being created at U.S. factories across the country, many of them based in Republican uh, districts where some of the more anti-Ukrainian uh, politicians might likely find themselves um, being from. And uh, moreover, this provides for testing out these weapons on the ground without American lives being risked mm. in order to, to, to ascertain, you know, and get a leap up on the next sort of um, uh, stage and generation of, of uh, weapons. Going back to the sort of the general election and, uh, and the whole talk of Ukraine holding, maybe holding election in 2024, um, how receptive do you think the Ukrainian public is to authoritarianism? And I'm asking that because um, if we are to have an election during martial law and, and just, just the general state of war, um, the normal sort of democratic procedures are likely to be just to not take place because in order to have free and fair elections you need to have the opposition's voice present um, on the TV or, or, in, or generally in the media and that seems uh, at least to some people quite unlikely. What would you say to that? I'm not so sure that there would be all these uh, restrictions um, on uh, and limitations on the election process um, that you suggest. Um, I think that uh, Ukraine um, as a population has been very independent from the state and I think that's helped build democracy. Ukrainians have have elected six presidents in 30 years where their neighbors have only voted just one or two over that period of time. And they've only voted in one uh, president back into office, and that was Kuchma. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I think that uh, it is part of the character and nature for Ukrainians to be a bit more outspoken and a bit more um, circumspect with respect to whether the state is really serving their interests or not. So I can't imagine they would be quiet. I've also recognized at the moment we have in Ukraine this unified news uh, television network in which all the news stations are sort of combined and only uh, 
broadcasting just one uh, news program throughout the day. And um, I think some in Ukraine might be a little bit tired of seeing just the same faces and want to have a bit more diversity. And I think that that might be, uh, if that changes, certainly it would possibly happen in, in relation to the presidential campaign if it were to pick up in the spring. I could see the two, you know, holding an election at the same time of uh, diversifying uh, the uh, broadcast news um, uh, would allow for that. It, it is hard to imagine how candidates would, who ran under full sort of democratic uh, procedures, if you will, where opposition figures are given, given airtime, opposition parties are given time on the airwaves. And um, when we remember uh, uh, and, uh, in the Olympic Stadium how uh, uh, Zelensky debated um, uh, Poroshenko, Poroshenko yeah. and uh, that led obviously to you know Zelensky's ultimate victory in that race but it was quite competitive and I don't think that the, the public would want to see an election that sort of for election process that was more contained all right, that that makes sense. Certainly, you've drawn a much more positive picture than than some some say at home. Um, sort of to 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 um, finish our discussion uh, or uh, near it closer to the end. Um, with millions of Ukrainians settling abroad uh, because of the war, many are likely to never come back. What are your thoughts on the future role and influence of the Ukrainian diaspora in the West or elsewhere in the world? So Ukrainians have been living abroad, um, you know, for generations. And there is certainly a, a, a big uptick in the um, immigration from Ukraine to Western countries after World War II, um, especially in Canada, the US and um, Australia. And these uh, immigrants and their descendants have become the uh, sort of very strong supporters of Ukraine from abroad. Certainly all of the sort of committee hearings that are taking place in Washington um, or seminars from, at think tanks that focus on Ukraine, there's a sizable component of the audience is our Ukrainian diaspora and they're pushing for what Ukraine needs. So uh, coupled with that, that we've had prior to the war uh, waves of sort of more recent emigres who have gone abroad, perhaps most of them may have gone to Poland, um, which is, you know, very close by, and they're able to, to uh, go back to Ukraine for part of the year while working in Poland. But they've been sending remittances back home mm. to their families. And I think that would also be helpful. Yes, a lot of Ukrainian um, migrants who left, uh, uh, ref refugees who left um, Ukraine since 2022 are um, quite possible likely to just, just stay where they are and move to a different country. But there's also a strong sort of connection and ties to Ukraine that I think a number of them uh, will not um, uh, let slip. One of the reasons why Poland got so many refugees after uh, February 2022 was because um, many families would want to go to, to 
be as close by to Ukraine as possible while um, wives were managing their families in, in Poland and their husbands were fighting uh, back in Ukraine. They didn't want to go far, so they don't anticipate um, staying there for the long run. Obviously, life is full of uncertainty and, you know, there are a lot of opportunities that may be presented to uh, refugees in the next uh, few years that might uh, encourage them to stay where they are, but I think a number of will go back as well. Do you think that those that will stay um, will probably play a bigger role um, for be, be to be an advocates of Ukraine uh, in their respective countries? Um, because we've seen, for example, um, the sort of the Jewish lobby, the Israeli lobby in the US is quite influential. Obviously, not to the same extent, but w would you say that some of the benefits of that uh, Ukraine will have? I think there are a number of uh, uh, Ukrainian diaspora groups, organizations that have been putting the pressure on the political sphere um, with respect to Ukraine in a very positive, constructive manner. Um, you know, I also think about how in the early 80s, after the Solidarity Movement and martial law came into force in Poland, a number of young Poles in their 20s and 30s left the country to go abroad, and they didn't think they'd ever come back. And a decade later, after the Berlin Wall fell, and Poland was building a country of, by, and for Poles for the first time in generations, these Poles came back, and they came back with expertise, with knowledge, and uh, a strong desire to help rebuild um, the country they had come from. I, without a doubt, if the right conditions are there, and the incentives are in place to encourage Ukrainians to come back after the war concludes, I, I would anticipate a good number of them would. Do you think it's kind of a patriotic movement and the patriotic feeling that people experience where, because there is millions and millions of Ukrainians that went abroad in the beginning of the war and now they're coming back even though the war is still ongoing? And I'm not even talking about female, women, m mothers and children, but also men mm -hmm. who are coming back knking that they're not going to be able to, for example, leave the country after they and they may have to serve. They, they may have to serve as well. As well. Yeah. Um, in some respects, after the initial months of 2022, parts of Ukraine seem to open up a bit more. Kiev is one place, and we see sort of a flood of diplomats and ambassadors and distinguished politicians um, making their trek um, by train from Lviv to Kyiv. And um, uh, it is, you know, I certainly have friends who go back and forth between Europe and Ukraine mm -hmm. almost on a monthly basis. And it's possible to do this. I am not certain about how many fatalities have occurred in the last year or so in places like Kyiv, but I imagine that they are still very rare, such that most people feel as if they're able to um, return to some level of normalcy in their lives. And the fact that people want to come back, people come back for a variety of reasons, whether it's family, for their work, for their business. Um, they want to have confidence that they're going to have some reasonable level of security as they do so. Um, and I think this is positive. I also recognize early on um, the mayor of 
Kiev was really saying we don't want people to come back quite yet because mm. they provide for more of a uh, challenge and difficulty to cope with so many um, people. But Kiev may not be as fully populated as it was before the war, but it, it's more populated, I, I understand, now than it was um, at the beginning months of 2022. Yeah, definitely. I agree. People are coming back, especially to Kiev. Would you have any sort of final messages or even advice for Ukrainian students who are here um, in the UK or, or just generally in the West? Uh, be creative and think about ways perhaps that you could have an impact. Um, there's no doubt that um, even if you are not located in Ukraine itself, you can make a difference whether it's just drawing up general support for the war, for the, for the Ukrainians in this fight, or whether it's um, uh, pushing for things that will make Ukraine a better democracy and a better um, uh, economy and country for the public as a whole. Um, to engage with uh, others and thinking about different ways to make a difference. And I think you can, absolutely can. And that is a good sort of point to, to finish our podcast. Thank you very yeah, much again so to Dr. Berenson for joining us and, and giving your thoughts on, on Ukraine and everything else. Thank you so much. My pleasure.